In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What's new? Uh, we got our second vaccine the other day. Huzzah. Huzzah, indeed. We're very excited to be done with that and just recovering so i took today off ahead of time and then i actually needed it like i woke up and i really felt terrible so Mm. that was yesterday um but that's about it nothing really exciting besides that what about you chess got her cone off because she was spayed two weeks ago so she is cone free which is awesome because she was even more of a terror wearing that cone than she is without the cone because she would just like ram into everything at like light speed and knock things over and (laughs) jam it in your face like she was really and she she likes to walk like right behind your feet when you're walking around and so with the cone it literally you couldn't walk around the house without just like having the like boom 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 of the cone bumping into the back of your legs so i'm happy that it's gone (laughs) did ziggy hate the cone as well Ziggy, it's so funny. The first day, Ziggy was, like, really curious and, like, wanting to make sure she's okay. (laughs) And then day two, she decided that she hated chess and hated the cone and would growl anytime she came near her. (laughs) And then she decided on day three that everything was fine again. And so she was going to start, like, jumping all over chess. Uh, And so, like, for several days, it was, like, us yelling at both of them, trying to get them to not play with each other. So I kind of wished Ziggy had gone back to growling at her, but everything's fine now. She didn't, I, I again, it feels like second child syndrome where it's like, you know, she, the vet says, you're not supposed to have them jump or run or anything. Mm-hmm. And she was jumping and running on day two. And Sick, there yeah. is very little that I could do to stop this dog without literally putting her in a crate. Seriously. So I was like, you know what? Go for it. We'll just <laughs> see what happens. Hope you live. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah. So that's all that's new. I have a couple uh, random updates for us, though. I see. I'm excited. So the first one is um, Craig, our friend, friend of the pod. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was texting me the other day because remember when we were talking about underwater basket weaving? I sure do. So uh, he also had the same image as me of somebody in a scuba tank fully <laughs> weaving baskets underwater. <laughs> So I feel kind of vindicated. I, I have to say, this this is the third episode in a row we've mentioned underwater basket weaving. We, we might want to consider, you know, an underwater. A spin-off? Underwater. Yeah. A spin-off podcast? <laughs> uh, the other random update I have is that I saw that they are doing a TV, like a dramatized series of The Staircase. Okay. And one of the parts, and I think it's the part of the wife although I'm not sure, maybe it's one of the children, is going to be played by Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones. Ooh. So. Wow, okay. Anyway, I'm I'm curious to see what that will turn out like. I am very curious to see how they're going to portray, especially the kids in that. Ooh, yeah, for sure. Gonna, who's going to play the guy? I can only imagine. I don't know. They've probably cast it. Let me see yeah. real quick. Oh, I hope it's like, I kind of hope it's an unknown that just like knocks it out of the park. That'd be good. Because he's uh, so affected. That I forget his name, but the the father oh, in that story is so affected. My God. It's Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Wait, now I have to look him up because I'm, I'm picturing a face, but I think I'm thinking of Colin Farrell. He's kind of perfect, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I think that would be great, actually. Yeah, yeah you're right. I do, too. Nice. That's exciting. That is very exciting. Okay. What do you have for me? I've got a few recommendations. Okay. I watched a Netflix documentary called Why Did You Kill Me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you see, have you seen it? Or no, I haven't. It? it was pretty good. It was a uh, story of, uh, what was her name? Terrible. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, as, I, as I look up her name, it's about a murder of this 30-something, I think, young, young girl. And it's... The, my only criticism of it is it uh-huh. was a little bit hard to feel compassion for some of the like family members of the victim. Okay. They made a lot of bad decisions and they weren't great, yeah. you know, with the things they did afterwards. But at the end of it, it was really good. Um, her name was, let me look it up really quick. We need to stop doing this, people. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal Theobald. So it's the okay. murder of Crystal Theobald and it's involving 
MySpace a lot, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. Oh, speaking of MySpace, there's now on like Twitter and things like that, people are posting kind of like captions of conversations they've had with young people who are like, my mom told me about this website called MySpace where you could like customize the design and have music playing when people visited your page. Like, that's so cool. I wish Facebook would do that or like whatever, you know, would do that. And it's like kind of horrifying to realize we've reached the point where there are people who have never even heard of MySpace. (laughs) I know. And I really hope, I really hope none of the current platforms like return to that. Uh, just the amount of glittery, sparkly font, I it that needs to be a relic of the past. It used to take like 15 minutes for some people's MySpaces to load. And then oh some my God. shitty song like yes. would load way later than the page yes. did, and you didn't see it coming. And no. all of a sudden, like, oh my God, what would be... Fun? Alien Ant Farm's cover of Smooth Criminal was playing, and you were just taken aback. <laughs> oh my God, I love that song. <laughs> I do too, actually. I think their cover is really good. It's a classic. I um I also watched the Jeffrey Epstein documentary. Did I talk about that last week? No, right? I don't think so, no. Yeah, we, we started it a long time ago, and then I don't know what made us forget about it, and then we just The Filthy it. Rich one? Yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. I really didn't know a lot about the Jeffrey Epstein case, to be honest. I think I, I don't think I've watched that documentary, but I think Sinisterhood has done a couple episodes mm-hmm. on Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, my Lord. I mean, I knew the, the general gist of it, but I didn't really sure. know the details, and I didn't know just, like, the sheer volume of the people. Mm-hmm. It was, that was pretty wild, but highly, yeah. I mean, way old recommendation, but highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lastly, I finally started another thing you recommended to me, oh, which yay. is going to surprise you, because it's not okay. what we've said recently, but um, I started watching The Sinner today. Oh my god, the first season? Yeah. Oh, the first season is really good. Holy shit. Like, I'm... Is Jessica Biel not an incredible actor? I'm so impressed. I am too. I was really taken away, taken aback. That's like my favorite phrase today. uh, (laughs) When I saw her, because I had only ever kind of associated her with, like, not really high quality acting. But she's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's... So far, it's been... Like, oh my, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, so, it's three good. Three episodes in, I can't wait to continue on. Season two was also really good. It was a little bit, um, I think you'll like it. It was a little bit more, I feel like this is my favorite phrase, mm-hmm. Southern Gothic mm-hmm. than <laughs> season one. Um, but it's still really great. Good, great storyline, good actors. Season three, I think, is a little better than season two. Oh, okay. I was so. not expecting you to go that direction, so. And Matt Bomer is in season three, and he's hot. So. Oh my god, he is hot. <laughs> <laughs> and he's really hot in this show, so you're welcome. I'm excited. Well, so. great. Yeah, that, that's all I got. All right, shall we get into the episode? Oh, I actually, was... before we do that, yeah, I have to tell you about something. Okay. So I was at a frozen yogurt place the other day. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, uh-huh. And Teresa Caputo, the Long Island <laughs> medium, you're uh-huh. familiar she Is she a big me. fan of frozen yogurt? I guess so. All right. I guess so. She, she just popped up out of nowhere, and uh-huh. she said she wanted to know if I had a connection to the letter N. Okay. And I told her, my my BFF and co-host's name is N. Does that count? Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, well, yes, I have a message for you from, from the beyond. <laughs> okay? Okay, what was it? Riff from the headlines, your favorite indie podcast has a Patreon. What? Yes. <laughs> Tell so, me everything. Well, get ready. There are three tiers ranging from $1 to $10. There's tons of exclusive content for listeners to access on there. Uh-huh. Um, on the middle tier, you get access to video episodes of our fashion court. You also get that super cute sticker designed by N, which mm-hmm. truly over there. Mm-hmm. And at the highest level, you get a bonus ripped episode where we cover Law & Order SVU episodes. Wow, Nancy... <laughs> I literally <laughs> almost turned her into Nancy Grace. Um, <laughs> I mean, Teresa Caputo, she's really on top of it. Yeah, she also told me that with the highest tier, you can get 10% everything from our new merch store. Which, may I add, has designs made by you and I, uh-huh. um, as well as friend of the podcast, Lindsay Page. So shout out to her. And you could check it out at rippedheadlinespod.com. That's amazing. Thank amazing. you so much, Teresa Caputo. Thank you. That was, I can't believe I almost forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> what kind of frozen yogurt did you get? I don't know if I could say brands, but can I? Yeah, yeah sure, whatever. why not? I was at Yogurt Land. 
Okay. So I had like their tart, you know, that tart one that they have. You got the, you get the tart yogurt? I like to get the tart mixed with like a sweet sometimes. Not always. <sighs> okay. So this time I wanted like a tart and like a fruit, you know, so I got mm. tart and like a blackberry. Mm-hmm. I'm nice really bitter mix. generally, <laughs> yes. but especially because most frozen yogurt places have stopped stocking snow caps. Why? They're so I don't good. know. They're amazing. They're like one of the best toppings for frozen yogurt in the world. And mm. multiple places that I've been to just like don't have them. And I feel like it's an essential Froyo topping to keep um, in stock. I don't think I've done snow caps that much on frozen yogurt, but it sounds mm. great. I love snow it's, caps in general. It's so. really good with like a peanut butter or mm. a like cookies and cream or a chocolate kind of flavor. But I can't say it's the best. Like, there's so many great toppings at a Froyo place. Like I will... cookie dough or Reese's, uh, broken up Reese's pe Not even Reese's Pieces, but the broken up Reese's, like, Reese's cups. Uh. I'm, I mean, I'm going to say something controversially yet brave. I think they're the best Froyo topping. Well, okay, well, I mean, I'm going to counter that with the broken up Reese's cup pieces <laughs> as the best Froyo <laughs> topping. And, you know, we're just going to have to leave it at that. All right. Agree to disagree. (laughs) But back to this episode. This episode, as I was watching it, I was almost a little bit sad that I wasn't recapping it because there were some wild moments and some outrageous looks in this episode. I know. And I, you disclaimed to me that your case was larger than usual beforehand. And I had a really hard time (laughs) making sure I fit in all of these performances (laughs) and... I had a harder time fitting in the content that's making fun of the people. <laughs> yes. And the actual content of the episode. Ugh. All right. I can't well, wait. So it's season two, episode 14 of Law and Order. Uh, the title is Blood is Thicker. Dot, yes. dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Ooh. Then what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> then snow caps. So we begin outside with a lady being swallowed up by a mink coat. Just to the floor, wearing combat boots. I swear. I was like, is that a is that someone carrying props? It was so weird. Like, yeah. that would be an expensive coat, even if it was fake fur, because it's to the ground. Strange. I, but the combat boots combined with a floor-length <laughs> fur coat was weird. <laughs> yes. And so it's it's nighttime, and the we're on the street, and there's a crowd of, like, fancy-looking people. Like, it's like, it looks like a a ruckus going on and then you see it's like a bunch of like older fancy looking people Mm -hmm. and they're trying to get in somewhere and two beat cops and i would say that this counts thank you i already gave myself credit but i was ready to fight for it okay yeah two beat cops arrive on the scene and they are the first characters we really like focus on and speak so you got another beat cop opening here thank you You i think i only need that was number six so i need two more beat cop openings i think you're probably gonna get it and I need two more pieces of evidence picked up by a pencil, but I've already got my dog discovery. So I feel like I'm going to hit my hit my goals. Yeah, we got to start looking for those pens and pencils. Yeah, stationary. pay attention. <laughs> so the two B cops come, and if you blink, you'll miss our first guest star. Oh, I definitely didn't spot them. Oh, yes. So one of these B cops, which we only see for a moment, is Nick Sandow. And he is best known as uh, the warden in Orange is the New Black, Caputo. Oh my god, really? Yeah, I had to rewind to find him in the episode. And I was like, oh, that's him. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. How funny. right? Yeah. But this whole scene just serves as like a weird narrative device to have this young couple shimmy through the crowd and down (laughs) an alleyway. And they're like, oh my god, they're laughing and obnoxious. And they're deciding what to do next with their night. And... As this is the craziest thing for me. This was the biggest offense. They're flirting, and during this flirtatious like moment, he playfully pushes her down onto a it- pile of <laughs> trash bags in a New York City alleyway. You know there would be rats and cockroaches there. Hello? Oh my god, the, the horror. The horror <sighs> that would be. And does she react in horror? No. No. She well, picks one up and tosses the bag at him. She yeah, picks up a trash bag like it's a pillow. Like the, yeah. the babysitter's club. I was mystified as to why I, I would, number one, never push me in a pile of garbage. Number two, <laughs> if somehow you fall into garbage by mistake, do not throw garbage at me in a playful way. That is not fun. I, I wanted to vomit. The trash, especially in New York City, is like oh. a special brand of like repulsive. Yeah. But hey, she, <laughs> she, uh, when she 
throws the bag of trash like it's uh you know a pillow fight yeah it exposes a body of a well-dressed woman so you've met your quota for trash discoveries also wait oh my gosh yes (gasps) thank you i wouldn't have given i wouldn't have noticed that and given myself credit for it so thank you but you know what that actually exceeds Oh, no, did you make a note? You wrote it I down. I did. I wrote it down. Okay. I was going to say I've already gotten it, but you you gave me credit. Thank you. Yes. Yes. So you really literally only need what one more or two more beat cop openings, and we got to get the pens and pencils ready. <laughs> yes. What if it's like salad tongs, like that one episode? Will you give me credit for that? I'll give you credit for it if it's like something preposterous, like salad yeah. tongs. Yeah. Like they clearly should not be touching evidence with whatever it is. Yeah, like a chopstick. <laughs> <laughs> a broom handle. Okay. <laughs> So, Soretta and Logan arrive on the scene, and the uh, victim is ID'd as Lois Ryder, and her necklace was torn off her so hard it ripped the skin with it. She was hit with a bat. Uh, Her jewelry was taken, but her other belongings were left behind, which another detective who arrives on the scene says matches the MO of a criminal in the area. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to the opening credits. Mm -hmm. So, I realized I had a sec. Mm -hmm. So, Davey and I played a round of Risk. Oh, uh, a real quick game, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, the game of global domination, if you heard. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, continent did you start with? Oh, I immediately wanted to claim Australia. Yeah, Australia is really the the safe bet. You got to get those uh, extra points, get those armies, get those cards. Yep. (laughs) Um, And then I won. And when I got back to the TV, the show was just coming back with those harpsichord little sounds at the end. (laughs) (laughs) P.S. Did the the dun the dun dun sounded different to me this time? Ooh, did it? But, I didn't notice. Maybe I'm just. I think that if you pay attention, I think the dun dun on Law and Order is slightly different than the dun dun on SVU. Ooh, okay. I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, I'm gonna pair, compare my dun duns. <laughs> we get back to the episode, and they go to see her husband, who for the majority of this episode will be standing and staring off with his mouth agape. Okay. I need you to describe this man because I have two comparisons to make for everybody. Okay. Um, his hair uh-huh. is like a cross between Dr. Fraser Crane and yes. Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein. A hundred percent. That is excellent. I was going to say <laughs> that he looks like any nondescript demon from Charmed <laughs> meets Riff Raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I could totally see that. It and was... Wild. And his acting, speaking of wild. His acting... Would would we call it acting? I would call it, um... If hmm. he was playing the role of a wooden post, (laughs) I would call it acting. (laughs) His body language, like I said, is just kind of standing around the whole time and kind of in a daze. And when he has lines, he performs them as though he's doing, like, a Shakespeare in the Park performance, but he's taking it, like, way too seriously. He's really terrible. Yeah, in this scene, he says things like, I told her not to walk. We spoke. Yeah. We spoke! <laughs> <laughs> what light through yonder window break? <laughs> Honestly. Anyway, they uh, they ask him where he was the night of the crime, and he says he's been fixing a leak at their country home for like the past four days. And um, when they spoke, Lois said that she was going to the movies. So Let's um, also note that this family is richer than God, and oh, he beyond. was away fixing a leak. You know they would have hired somebody. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't really look like the handy type either, I'm going to be honest. No, no. So as they're having this conversation in like his study or living room, their two young children come in, and they're like, Daddy, what are you talking about? And it's very like <laughs> dramatic and traumatic. No one says anything. They all kind of lean about, you know, boo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> so Logan talks to a human ponytail. <laughs> Oh my god. In the little movie theater uh, enclave? Yes. Yes, Yes, it's just a ponytail atop of a neck. That's all I remember. (laughs) Davey was like, is that Lin-Manuel Miranda? (laughs) Um, And the guy says he never saw her, and Soretta canvasses the area around the movie theater as well. Nobody recognizes Lois. So in the next scene, they're with the M.E., who kind of gives me like a creepy American Horror Story asylum vibe. He's like a evil genius looking guy Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. he says that there was semen present from the past 48 hours and there was no signs of assault and on top of well go ahead (laughs) i was just gonna say i'm pretty excited to 
announced that this actor is in two more episodes of Law and Order as two different characters. Oh God, is he? <laughs> yes. Oh God, <laughs> Davy was like he's like a, every mortician you've seen in every yes. show. He's like very yeah. Very nefarious seeming. I hope he's a yes. bigger character in the future. If he had a laboratory with like one of those Jacob's ladders and the ball that you <laughs> mm-hmm. touch with the electricity, I would be zero percent surprised. Yeah, exactly. He um he also tells us that, you know, in her stomach she had like digested meat, so she probably had had a meal within the past evening. Mm-hmm. And they realize that they have to take this info now to the husband, who is now either going to find out that his wife was cheating on him or they're gonna find out that he was lying about not seeing her. Yeah. When they finally get to the estate, which, as you've said, is like a massive piece of property, his mother, Barbara, greets them, who is another guest star. Her name is Nancy Marchand, or Marchand, and she's been in a ton of things, but most notably for me, she was uh, Livia Soprano until she passed away in 2000 in The Sopranos. I never saw The Sopranos. I only saw the first two seasons, but Mm. yeah, she plays Tony Soprano's mother, I believe. Just really quickly, I need to I need you to comment on the decor of these rich people's houses. Oh my god. It's like they walked into a like Lord and Taylor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they just said, "Give me everything. Everything you're doing here, just give me everything." Uh-huh. And we're just going to put it on every wall. There's so much like gilded There's... stuff oh, and like god. filigree yes. and heavy like Thick Wallpaper. gold frames, yes. <laughs> yes. Giant drapes, giant, well. giant drapes. One of the scenes, there's an episode where the guy, the riffraff-looking motherfucker, mm-hmm. um, he is sitting on the couch, and there's a giant picture frame that is pr- approximately half an inch above the couch. <laughs> it was so, and it was not like a big, it was like a really, it was so strange. No, it's it's wealth at its best. They're clearly like upper crust, and uh, Barbara uh, the mother, she insists that, you know, you're here to see my son, but he's already spoken to you. He's not really willing to talk to anybody else. <laughs> and, and he's tranquilized right now. Yeah, he's tra- he's, tra- he's he's sedated. And as she's saying this, he comes out of the hallway looking like a toddler in his jammies. Yes. Waking up from a bad dream. And he tells mommy, I'll talk to them. It's okay. And so he comes out and they're like, all right, well, you know, they tell him about the semen. And... His mother and he both refused to let him consent to a blood test. And they're like, well, if it's, you know, if you know who it's from, what's the problem? But he says this is just an attempt at a cheap scandal, or his mother says it. His mother does most of the talking. Mm-hmm. So they go to speak to a hospital employee where Lois volunteered regularly. And this woman reluctantly shares with the detectives that she was seeing a but that Lois was seeing a married pediatric doctor named mm-hmm. Joel Friedman. Mm-hmm. And so they show up at his door, and he's, of course, reluctant to talk because he's married with children. I have two things to say really quickly. Mm. Number one, I'm really excited for us to talk about the mom's hair on the next Fashion Court, because that hair oh. was yes. one of the seven wonders of the world, I mentioned it a little bit later, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Dr. Friedman... I think he's really hot. He was cute. I looked him up, and I think he's, I mean, he's been in a lot of things, but I it didn't, he wasn't front of mind for me for anything, but he is really he, cute. He kind of has a little bit of a Chris Maloney face. Oh, I could, he kind of gave me, like, Matthew Broderick face. Okay. All right. They, they go to see him, and, you know, he's, he's reluctant to talk to them, and then we get the very classic scene we've seen in many episodes of these types of shows where the wife pops up from behind him doing busy work, like <laughs> holding a ball. Who's that yeah. dear? <laughs> and he's like, okay, never mind. I'll go with you guys. So yeah. he cooperates and goes to the station and he tells them that he and Lois had been dating for five months. He loved her. And she had called him the night of her murder to talk. And that Lois and her husband, Jonathan, were not happily married, as Jonathan has suggested. And that while Lois loved Jonathan... His family never accepted her, and they were constantly reminding her that she was, like, not of the same uh, social status as them and their family. Mm -hmm. And he also Mm -hmm. says that Jonathan knew about the affair. Um, It wasn't a big surprise to him. So anything that he gave them earlier where he's like, I can't imagine she'd be cheating on me. I'm not going to do a blood test. I already know it's me. You know, doesn't really hold up. Yeah. Lies. Yeah. And on top of that, he says that Jonathan didn't seem to care, quite frankly, about the (laughs) affair. Um, Right. It seemed to him that... Lois was basically using him to make Jonathan jealous at the end of the day. 
Yeah. So Ryder, again with his mommy, shares with them that he knew, but he knew about the affair, but it was ending anyway, and that maybe Joel wasn't so happy about it. So maybe it's he who you should be speaking to. Mm-hmm. And then his mom adds in this conversation that he was not of the same element as them. Yeah. She's a she's charming. She's a real treat. A little, uh, <laughs> I was going to call her marzipan. <laughs> Why? <laughs> After a bunch of canvassing, they discover that Jonathan not only knew about the mugging that had happened with that baseball bat M.O., but he was also seen with Lois that weekend when he was supposedly, you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. And so they suppose that he probably is the one they're they're after, and they come up with the theory that he killed his wife. He copycatted the mo of the criminal with the bat, and then dumped her in the same area, hoping to just get away with it. Right. They don't really have a lot to go on to prove this, but they have like a few pieces of evidence. They have some cashmere fibers that are found in the trunk of her car, which match her clothing, and they bring it all to Robinette. And he's like, um, you know, you're going to need to get me a little more. This yeah. isn't quite going to hold up in court that she wore a sweater and it was in her trunk. <laughs> right. It was in her own car. Right. So they end up looking through her day planner and they find a man named Kent popping up a lot. And they go to speak to him and he says they were just friends and that, you know, she was going to him for advice because, you know, he belonged to the same world as the writers and she didn't have the same savvy And so he explains to them that, in actuality, Jonathan is not the upstanding guy he seems to be. He's always been sort of a screw-up, and his mother has always reminded him of it. They don't really Mm -hmm. have the best relationship. He's always trying to get her approval. And he also discloses that the family had urged Jonathan to basically get rid of Lois. And in that, he had offered her $3 million at one point to walk out of the marriage and make the family happy. Mm-hmm. And she turned it down because she wanted counseling. Uh, girl, $3 million? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Bye. Thank you. Well, but she was, if they got divorced, she was entitled to like 20. Right. Oh, true. True. And then there's more to that as we'll find out. So they realized that while they recovered most of the jewelry from her, there's an older unique piece that's still missing. So they wonder if it was maybe not just something, you know, she had purchased, maybe it was a family heirloom. Which I thought mm-hmm. was a big jump to make, but hey, yeah, they figured yeah. that out. And when they conduct a search, bam, they find it. It's a pin that looks like fl- a flower, a few flowers with some leaves, and they find it in Barbara's possession. Wow. The mom. Yes. Yeah. This whole pin storyline is very strangely convoluted. It, yeah, it's very strange. So they, yeah. they find this pin that belonged to, that supposedly belonged to the victim, and Barbara has it now. And this is where I wrote, Barbara, by the way, transforms more and more into a hen mm. as this episode <laughs> moves forward. <laughs> and then I wrote, her hair is definitely that of an exotic fowl. Very much. Uh, uh, the order part begins of the episode, and Stone tries to get the boyfriend, Joel, to help them. But he wants to preserve his marriage, and he doesn't want to be involved. He's like, you can sue me. I don't care. I'll pay the fine. Yeah. So then they move on, and they they do some extra digging, and Robinette uncovers that $3 million agreement. He mm-hmm. finds it in paper, and it has a clause on it that s- says that she would have to surrender custody of her children also. So Dang. That, no wonder she didn't take it. Yeah, exactly. Um, in the meantime, while this is happening, Jonathan has jumped bail. Yep. And gone to Barbados. <laughs> How nice. Yeah. I want a life where if I wanted to like go on a vacation in a moment's notice, I could just be there in like 24 hours. Wouldn't that be great? That would be, I mean, I don't want to be like a criminal to, to have that life, but I would like <laughs> <Nope>. that life. <laughs> I mean, not preferably. Yeah. So they bring him back to the United States, and he's held without bail this time. And this lands him in Rikers Island. So the DA's office conspired to get a informant in his cell, hoping that, you know, in the meantime, something will come out of it. Yeah. Because they don't have very much, but the pin is like a big deal. So they go to trial, and slowly the prosecution's evidence is getting Prosecution. Prosecution. <laughs> Sorry. Raspberries. <laughs> um, <laughs> they go to trial, and slowly the prosecution's evidence is getting weaker and weaker. Um, the defense is chipping away at it. And it, in particular, when the defense reveals that the pin that is like their big case breaker is mm-hmm. one of a set of four pins that are all identical. Yeah. And he presents two other pins, which are, like like he says, basically a match to the one that right. the prosecution has. 
Yeah. So with this, you know, they confuse the witnesses who aren't able to pick one out from the other. And when Barbara gets on the stand, she says that, yes, I there were four of these pins. They've been my family for a long time. And the one that was recovered from her home was not the same one that Lois had. That one is the missing of the four. Yeah. So the DA's office doesn't see much of a chance. Um, they, they're kind of like, what the hell are we going to do? That was a big hit for us. Yeah. And then suddenly the informant gets in contact with them with some news. Evidently, in the cell, Jonathan confessed to not only killing his wife, but his mom was disappointed in him that he had botched it up. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful, but the next day, he takes it back. Right. And it seems pretty clear that Barbara has gotten to him via his wife. So they're back at square one. They are able to have Lois and Jonathan's young daughter, and they have her interviewed under supervision. Which I was like, what is she really going to (laughs) know? And in this tape, she says that, and I don't know how this would have come up in conversation, really, but she says that the pin that her mother wore was very special to her because it was eventually going to be given to her. And then her mother always said it was special and different than the others. But the reason why was a secret. (laughs) Um, This is a bad murder mystery plot. I mean, they were like, how are we going to have this reveal? But yes. So they're like, okay, well, and I don't understand how this works either, but they're like, you know what? If that's true, you know who's going to know what's different about that pin? Her secret boyfriend. Right. So they go to him again, and he he actually does know what's different about the pin. They get his cooperation, and he goes on the stand, and he reveals that Lois's pin was special, because, it, and he's able to pick it out right in front of everybody, because it secretly had a... L engraved into the leaf on it, which Barbara in the courtroom looks like horrified by more than the murder. She's like, oh, an L? Because she has her (laughs) initial also engraved in it. Right. And, you know, this is like a big bombshell. And this leads to the jury right afterwards finding Jonathan guilty of second degree murder. And just this is also weird. Despite Barbara perjuring herself on the stand, which is clear now, she just walks away with the grandchildren in tow. Like, just like nothing. Um, And this happens as Stone and Robinette have their little courtroom steps uh, prophetic conversations. (laughs) And they say, like, oh, the next... I think Robinette's like the next generation of riders, eh? And Stone says, God help them. I don't... Yeah, the ending was bad. It was a little Uh, anticlimactic. And yeah, for sure, that mom should have been brought up on, like, perjury charges, on obstruction of justice, because she was clearly lying the whole time. Yeah. Very, very odd. Okay. Well, good job. Are you ready to hear about the true crime? I'm dying to know, because I You had a guess. I did have a guess. I I feel like it's a stretch, but... Yeah, I was very perplexed by your guess. (laughs) You know what? Don't be so perplexed because Davey had the same guess as me. The guess I had, which I know was a very far stretch, but I was like, maybe Law & Order really, you know, was saying like a wealthy family of status that didn't accept the wife of their young, you know, heir to the throne. And then they have two children that they accept, but they still don't accept their mother. And yeah. then the guy she's involved with was actually more of a love interest than a fling, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. That, I could see how it could be a reinterpretation of that story. See? It is not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and actually, this episode was not inspired by any specific crime. So mm. I picked one that was kind of similar that I found really interesting. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. So this is the story of Janet March. Mm. Do you recognize that name? I don't. So she was born Janet Levine in 1963 to her parents, Carolyn and Lawrence, and Janet was the first of two children. They grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and she was a really artistic child. She grew up wanting to be an artist, and eventually, kind of while she was in high school, she had her work exhibited in restaurants and community centers in Nashville. So it sounds like she was pretty good. She was so passionate about art, she decided to study it at the University of Michigan, And a lot of her friends kind of recall that she had a lot of the stereotypes of an artist. Like, you know, she was late and forgetful. She uh, (laughs) was sometimes a little prone to, like, going on trips to other cities. And one one thing noted that she could be kind of difficult when angry. And I was like, well, who isn't? I mean, yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm very fun when I'm angry. I'm a blast. Yeah, exactly. 
So when she was a sophomore at University of Michigan, her roommate introduced her to a man named Perry March, and they began dating and were pretty much inseparable from minute one. Perry and Janet moved to Chicago, where he worked as a futures broker. And I tried, (laughs) I literally tried reading about what a futures broker was because I wanted to know, and I literally could not comprehend what it was. (laughs) Yeah, I... It was like (laughs) working the stock market, but also fortune telling. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with fortune telling. It's just fortune telling. (laughs) So they moved back to Nashville because Janet kind of wanted to be closer to her parents, and... Janet had convinced her parents, who are very, very wealthy, by the way, he's his her father was a really successful lawyer. She convinced her parents to pay for Perry's tuition to Vanderbilt, where he was pursuing a law degree. So uh, he his parents weren't quite as wealthy as hers. His mom had actually died when he was pretty little. Uh, and his dad, it kind of sounds like wasn't the best, maybe. Okay. But Perry was really smart. He excelled in all of his classes at Vanderbilt. His classmates described him as really driven, a really tough negotiator, and he specifically had a drive to be really wealthy as well. Okay. So they got married. Um, In 1987, Janet got kind of tired of waiting for him to propose, so she ended up proposing to him. Cute. And they got married later that year. Her parents pretty much immediately gave them money to buy a house in Nashville, a really nice house in Nashville. He graduated from law school. She, by this time, had work um, illustrating children's books. And they had a couple of kids together, a son named Samson in 1990. And in 1994, they had a daughter named Zipporah, which is uh, Perry's mother's name, who had passed away. Okay. By the way, the the kind of rumor uh, that... I read in a lot of the articles was that his mom, Zipporah, had maybe died by suicide and that the family just kind of didn't talk about it. Oh, okay. So during this time, Perry's father, Arthur, moved to the Nashville area and the Levines apparently kind of like financially helped him as well, but he seems to have not managed money well. He ended up declaring bankruptcy in 1991. And after a little while, he ended up moving to a town in Mexico. Okay. So Perry was also having some difficulties at work. He worked for a pretty big law firm. And at work, he decided (laughs) to send notes to one of the paralegals who worked at the law firm. And the letters talked about her body and how attractive she was. He talked about wanting to do things to her for hours. Oh, God. Men, if you ever find yourself tempted to write this kind of a letter, you need to stop yourself. Absolutely. Oh my god. Get a diary. Get a diary. <laughs> Don't oh. send letters to people about this. God, about their body. Uh, yeah. And his letters also said, like, he was married, and, but, you know, marriage can make sex boring, and so he was, you know, felt bad about it, but he really wanted to be with her, blah, blah, blah. Oh, what a what a, what a turn on. Who says chivalry yeah. is dead? Exactly. The letters kind of continued. She was getting more and more of them. But as I said, they were anonymous. She didn't really know who was leaving them. And so she went to management and they decided to hire an outside investigator and installed some hidden cameras and pretty quickly caught Perry as the one leaving the notes for her. Oh. So he was given the choice at this point to either um, he would be allowed to resign if he attended, agreed to attend therapy or they were going to fire him. They ended up firing him because okay. <laughs> I guess he didn't want to go to therapy. He also apparently, I was unclear based on the articles I read whether this was an agreement that was reached sort of outside of court or as part of some sort of legal proceeding, but he agreed to pay the paralegal who he had sexually harassed um, $25,000 for her harassment in order to avoid a lawsuit against him and the firm. Mm, of course. Perry did not tell Janet about the letters or being fired from the law firm. How did she not know? Well, at this time, he started working for his father-in-law's firm, Mm. so Janet's father. Got it. So Perry apparently disclosed at this point that he and Janet were having some difficulties. They were seeing a marriage counselor, 
But reportedly, Janet was really private. She didn't tell any of this to her friends. But some friends did kind of note that during this period of time, she seemed a little depressed. And when they gave birth to their second daughter, Zipporah, they moved into a much larger house that they actually like custom built themselves. They spent a year designing it and constructing it. And the house in Nashville cost $650,000, which that was in the early 90s. And so... Today, it would be about $1.2 million. Okay. So pretty big, good-sized house. Yeah. But this unfortunately didn't really help to resolve the issues between them, which may be shocking to you because, you know, things like that are Mm -hmm. Band-Aids. But they decided to both go see psychiatrists. They saw uh, a therapist together. And sometimes during this period, Perry would spend nights away from home to kind of get away from Janet. And reports indicate that some folks saw him with other women during this period. Oh, God. Apparently, they fought a lot. And there was a lot of yelling in front of the kids, as well as in front of the marriage counselor. And Perry had kind of a reputation for being a hothead. He, many neighbors recalled him yelling at them on multiple occasions for things like pulling into their driveway to turn around or things like that. It was, you know, kind of dramatic yeah um in mid-august the march's cleaning lady recalled that she had seen a book about divorce on janet's nightstand and friends reported that janet said she seemed a little afraid of perry and that she had made an appointment to see a divorce lawyer on august 16th so she had that appointment scheduled she and her mom were going to go to the divorce divorce attorney okay the day prior, on August 15th, the Marches were having some repairs done on their kitchen, some like new countertops installed, and some cabinets kind of repaired. And that evening, after putting the children to bed, Perry and Janet reportedly began fighting, and Perry later would state that Janet had told him she was leaving for a short vacation somewhere but wouldn't tell him where. And again, as I said, you know, Janet was kind of known for taking trips on a whim, as people said. Impulsive. Yeah. So he says that she was really upset. She packed some clothes into two bags and a suitcase. She took her passport. She took $1,500 in cash and a bag of marijuana and hopped in her car. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) So he said that she she had given him a a written list of things to do. She had like typed up all the things he needed to take care of while she was gone. And she left the house at 8.30. At about 9 o'clock, Perry began calling some of his friends and family to tell them that Janet had left on this trip, and he called his brother and sister at 9 p.m., a longtime friend of Janet's at 10 p.m., and then he called his in-laws at midnight, which I think is weird that they didn't really elaborate on. Would I mean, if somebody got a if you called me at midnight, I would be like, can this wait till morning? Mm-hmm. So Janet's mother, Carolyn, thought that it was weird that Janet had left on a trip, but she said, okay, Perry, you know, just have Janet call me when she gets back. The next morning, um, as as I said, the Marches were pretty wealthy, uh, so they had both a nanny and a cleaning person. And the cleaning person arrived and said that the house already appeared to have been cleaned, quote, almost as if somebody had already scrubbed the place and emptied all the trash. And she also reported that Perry told her not to clean the kids' playroom. Uh, okay. The nanny arrived about an hour later, and Perry told both her and the cleaner that Janet had gone to California to visit her brother, Mark. Where do they live again? Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, okay. This really struck the nanny as odd because Janet had always let her know in advance when she was going to be traveling or leaving, and she would give her instructions on what to do to take care of the kids. Of course. At about 10 a.m., a friend of the Marches came by who had scheduled a play date with their son, Samson. So she brought her son to play with Samson. And apparently the nanny or or the cleaning person kind of like let them in the side door because Perry didn't answer the, the front door. And when she walks in, Samson is kind of like bouncing up and down and sitting on this rolled up rug that she spots inside the house. And she later would say that she thought that was really weird because Janet was really kind of fanatical about her hardwood floors and them being like immaculate, clean, polished at all times. Mm-hmm. So she was like, that's weird that there's a rug here. So uh, Perry 
would say that he was kind of surprised that she was there, but he let the boys play that evening or play that afternoon anyway. And later that evening, Janet's parents and Perry kind of, you know, wanting to supposedly know where Janet was, they drove to the Nashville airport to see if they could like spot Janet's Volvo as like in parking at the airport. Like, okay, she took a plane somewhere, but they didn't end up finding it anywhere. On the 17th, Janet's mother, Carolyn, started to get really worried because Janet was never really gone from her children for that long. So it sounds like the trips she took maybe were like prior to the children or any trips she took after having the kids were kind of like day trips or like an overnight or something like that. Right. So now at this point, she's been gone for several days. And so by the end of the week, um, both Perry and the Levines are starting to fear that Janet is in trouble, especially because their son Samson's birthday was in two days and she wasn't there for like the planning or getting ready for it. And they were really concerned because they said she would never miss her son's birthday party. Yeah. In response to this, Perry showed everyone a list that Janet had left him, the list of things to do. And the list said that she would be back about 12 hours from that point uh, on the 17th. And so kind of taking that as some amount of comfort, her parents decided, you know, okay, we won't call the police right now. Perry claims that later on, by the way, there are competing versions of this story where Perry says the parents didn't want to call the police because supposedly they thought it would embarrass Janet. But the Levine said that Perry had vehemently re- resisted calling the police. Okay. Samson's birthday came and went. Janet never showed up. And at the party, Perry and the Levines kind of concocted this story to tell everybody that Janet was in California. Um, she had contracted an ear infection, and that's why she wasn't home in time for the son's birthday party. Because they just didn't know what was going on at this point, and they didn't want to freak everybody out. Okay. So, as I said... There was this list that Janet had supposedly given Perry, and the parents finally got a chance to see this list, and they were immediately kind of like, this is weird, for multiple reasons, including, number one, Janet always wrote her lists out by hand, and this was typed out on a computer and printed out. Okay. When she did write on the computers, she had a way of writing where she never capitalized anything, including like the first letter of sentences. But this letter had kind of normal capitalization rules. Mm. Janet usually dated her lists at the top of the page, but this one was dated at the bottom, which they would see as a trend more common to lists that Perry had written. And the content of the list they thought was weird too, because it was things like feed the kids, <laughs> you know, like General. really basic things, but it didn't mention the play date that was going to be happening the next day. So they were like, that's weird that that's not on this list. Later, Janet's mother, Carolyn, would testify that the night after Janet's disappearance, she had come over to help Perry kind of put the kids to bed, and she had seen a yellow legal pad with Perry's handwriting, and on that legal pad was a similar list of items to the printed list, and at the top of the list was the words written, two weeks, and it was circled. (sighs) Janet's father, Mark, would later testify that on the day Perry mentioned the list, he asked Perry, can I come over and see the list? And Perry was like, uh, sure. And they were like at his house. And reportedly, they drove separately and Perry like drove like a bat out of hell, beat Mark to their house. And when the father got there, he was like ringing the bell multiple times to try to get in. And it took Perry like many, many doorbell rings before he answered the door and kind of showed him the list. Mm, Okay. So 12 days after her disappearance, and the Levines have been searching for her, Perry sometimes accompanying accompanying them, the Levines go to the police, and the detectives start to investigate Janet's disappearance. They look into recent hospital admissions. They don't find anything there. They investigate Janet's, like, credit cards and bank activity and see no activity at all. By this time, Janet's brother Mark had flown out, and reportedly, when Perry saw Mark— He was shaking so hard that he had a a really hard time, like, even standing up from his chair to see Mark, which, you know, he, Mark was kind of the cover story that uh, had been given that she was out visiting him. Right. On September 7th, Janet's Volvo was found in the parking spot of an apartment complex five miles away, and it was kind of dusty and covered in pollen, so it indicated that it had been there for a while, because there was also, like, cobwebs in the uh, wheel wells. So the later inspections would show that that car had been there for many days. And a friend noted something weird about this, which was that the car was backed into the parking spot and Janet always pulled into parking spots 
forwards. Mm, okay. When the police searched the car, they found the items that Perry had said Janet left with. You know, the the couple of bags, marijuana. the passport and all that. The marijuana, I guess, maybe. <laughs> um, but they noted some weird inconsistencies. For example, she packed all summer dresses for clothing, mm-hmm. but didn't pack any bras. There was a suitcase that Perry had said she had taken, but that was not found in the car. And one of the details that isn't really is mentioned but isn't gone into in detail is that her sandals looked like they were staged in a specific place in the car. Hmm. And we never really find out what that means, but it because it was one of those things that they held on to so that they could kind of confirm if somebody actually had been involved or not, I you know, see. like one of those little details. Yeah. But it, apparently, you know, it's not like she tossed them off or she kind of slipped them off her feet. It was like they were sort of laying in a very specific way. Fashion, yeah. Also, her bags did not have any toothpaste, toothbrush, no hairbrush. So she was also missing some toiletries essentials in these bags. So essentially, it looks like the bags for this woman were packed by a man who has no idea what women, how women live. That's what this seems to indicate at this point. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. So a private investigator spoke to Perry that day that Janet's car was found, and that person noted that Perry only spoke of Janet in the past tense. The police interviewed Perry on September 10th, and they said that he appeared really nervous, and he, being a lawyer, was kind of like immediately just produced a written statement for them of his account of the nights of Janet's disappearance. And at this point, the next weekend, Perry takes the kids to Chicago to celebrate Rosh Hashanah with his family, but Perry's father didn't travel with them, and remember, Perry's mother is deceased. Mm-hmm. And Perry said, like, oh, yeah, my dad didn't come because he couldn't afford the trip. Which, again, they're wealthy. Right. So, some weird things. While he was in Chicago, the police obtained a search warrant for the house. And when they searched it, they found that the computer's hard drive had been forcibly removed from the computer and couldn't be found anywhere. The police also found that a week after Janet's disappearance, Perry had gone to a tire store and bought new tires. And when they interviewed the tire shop owner, he said that it was kind of weird because the tires on the car were in fine condition, but Perry had specifically told him he wanted a different brand of tire. Wow. Yeah. Shortly after the police executed the search of the home, Perry decided to just take his kids to Chicago and live there. And he took most of his and Janet's possessions with him. And he did this kind of claiming at this point that information about him being a suspect had been given to the press and he was being portrayed as a monster. And he said, quote, I'm the victim in all this. Um, okay. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He also said that, quote, there was an effort to have me killed or arrested to plant something like cocaine in my car, indicating that he thought that the Levines were trying to uh, either have him killed or framed for something. Okay. So the police officially declare this case a homicide at this point, and Perry is their prime suspect, especially because Perry has cut off all contact with Janet's parents, refuses to return to any calls from them, from the police, and he just directs everything to his lawyer. So now that it's been declared a homicide, a search for Janet's body begins in the nearby woods because their house was kind of um, on several acres, it sounds like. And the search involved helicopters, divers, cadaver dogs, thermal imaging. Uh, But despite this, they don't find her body anywhere nearby. Further suspicion at this point is that Janet's family decides to hold a memorial for her, and Perry and the kids don't show up. Okay. The police's theory at this point is that Perry, who, by the way, had a black belt in karate, killed Janet using some kind of neck hold or, like, pressure point or, or, you know, maybe choked her, and hid her body, moved her car, made up the list, and then had his father assist in him permanently relocating and hiding her body. Boy, okay. Perry participated in an interview with the Nashville scene where he, of course, was like, I'm innocent. None of this is true. So as I mentioned, Perry's a lawyer. Perry's father-in-law is a lawyer. So at this point, there are lawsuits flying around and appeals and motions just like back and forth all over the place. Oh, God. So Perry sued wanting control of Janet's finances, which were kind of held up in the period of time where she was, you know, missing and not presumed dead at this point. 
the grandparents were suing, saying they wanted visitation rights to the grandkids and potentially, like, shared custody of the grandchildren. Janet's mother, at this point, also is in Janet and Perry's house, and she finds copies of the letters that Perry had sent to the paralegal in, in like, an envelope type that only Janet used, not Perry, and that her name was written on it. So she, at this point, thinks, okay— She calls the police and tells them that she thinks Mm -hmm. what happened is Janet found these letters, confronted Perry about it, demanded a divorce, and that he killed her. And remember, at this point, Perry is employed by his father-in-law. And so, you know, there's some motive there, potentially, of if she divorces me and this comes out, I'm also going to lose my job at the law firm. So I'll be divorced. I won't get to see my kids and I won't have A a job. Yeah. So Perry's in Chicago at this point, and a lawyer kind of visits him to assess the claim, the grandparents' request for visitation rights. And she would later report that when she went to the home in Chicago, there were no photographs of Janet every, anywhere and no other memories of her found in the house. Like, she was just not present in the house. She told Perry that she was going to officially recommend visitation rights for the grandparents, And at this point, he apparently replied very angrily and told her that he was just going to disappear with the children to Singapore. Okay. (laughs) So Janet's parents, the Levines, end up winning some visitation rights. And so they arrive to Chicago to pick up the children to begin their kind of court-mandated visitation with them. But when they arrive in Chicago, Perry and the kids are gone. But Perry's brother is there, and he says that Perry had moved with the kids to Mexico. Remember, Arthur, Perry's father, owned a home in Mexico. Mm. About a week later, in Mexico, Perry met a local woman named Carmen Rojas. They got married and had a kid. At this point, the Levines are, they're super freaked out at this point, essentially, because they are pretty convinced that Perry killed their daughter and that he has their grandkids. Yeah. So they fly down to Mexico. They manage to get a court order from a Mexican court ordering Perry's arrest because he had, uh, they like realized he had stayed in Mexico beyond the terms of his visa. And so they get a a court order from a Mexican court arresting him for violating his visa. Okay. While he's busy with the police, the Levines rush to the school where the children are, take the children, and fly them back on a plane to Nashville. Pretty immediately, proceedings begin for them to have permanent custody of the children. Perry is, of course, fighting this. He claims that they had abducted his children. And after a lot of law stuff back and forth, which I'm not going to go into, (laughs) the Levines were basically ordered to return the children to Perry. So this whole legal back and forth... By the way, as I was reading it, it was like, they filed this, and then this counter motion, and then this happened. It literally read like they were just playing draw fours in Uno with each other, with, like, law stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So, at this point, it's early 2000, and Janet's case had gone cold. But two cold case detectives began looking into Perry's activity in Mexico to see if they can kind of figure out anything that points them back to this case. And they learned that in Mexico, uh, Perry had threatened a Mexican lawyer, saying that he would, quote, do away with him like he did his wife. And so the detectives and prosecutors start to kind of build their case against Perry. They presented 59 different witnesses to the court to prove that there was sufficient evidence to bring second-degree murder charges, uh, charges of tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. They were also working on, and and this is all kind of happening without Perry necessarily being aware of it, mm-hmm. because they have to figure out how to get him extradited from Mexico so that he can face trial in the United States. So in August of 2005, Perry is arrested in Mexico, and when he is turned over to the FBI, the Levines take custody of the kids, and eventually they succeed in obtaining permanent custody. While on the plane ride from Mexico... Perry reportedly tells one of the detectives on the plane that he was willing to plead guilty if he was assured no more than seven years. And that detective also reported that he said, quote, prior to the Janet incident, I've never been involved in any criminal activity. And then proceeds to ask the detective what prison is like. Not necessarily building evidence to support a defense for him. Not at all. He also asked if they had found Janet's body and asked them hypothetically whether he could be uh, prosecuted for second-degree murder if it had been an accident. Just asking for a friend. Just, you know, curious. 
So Perry is housed in a Nashville jail, and on his first night there, he approaches another inmate named Russell Ferris and asks him if he can kill the Levines, his in-laws. He told them, he told him, I can give you money, uh, you know, I can sell this property in Mexico and give you money that way, or, you know, I had written this novel, and I have a cash advance from that novel, um, and I can pay you with that. The novel that he wrote was about a detective investigating the murder of a small, dark-haired woman. After a month's worth of the conversations between Ferris and Perry, Ferris tells his attorney that Perry is trying to hire him to kill the Levines. That attorney goes to the police, and together they wiretap Ferris so that they can get recordings of Perry talking about wanting to have the Levines killed. So they do get that recording data or those recordings, and he's charged with two counts of solicitation to commit murder and two counts of conspiring to commit murder. Perry's father is also charged with these same charges because they had recordings of Perry telling his dad the address for the Levine's house, the best time of day to go into their house, how to get a gun, and how to get back to Mexico after he killed them. Oh my god. So, another inmate would later report that Perry had told him what happened the night of Janet's disappearance. Um, and it kind of follows the, the theory that people had at this point, which is they had an argument about his infidelities. Janet said she wanted a divorce, and then it became visible, uh, physical. And the inmate said that he hit her over the head with a wrench and killed her. Oh my god. In the meantime, he was also convicted of embezzlement from his father-in-law's firm, he had stolen over $23,000 over the course of two years prior to Janet's disappearance. Wow. At trial, the jury was shown—this <laughs> is my favorite part of this story. Okay. At trial, the jury was shown a videotape of Perry's father, Arthur, testifying against Perry because they offered him a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against his son. Wow. Which is just this, like— karmic twist of fate to me that uh made me smile wow. <laughs> so arthur testified that perry uh did kill janet that night and that arthur had disposed of the computer hard drive at perry's request and a few weeks after the murder perry had taken him to a wooden area a wooded area north of nashville where they recovered janet's body and relocated it further away Ultimately, though, uh, Arthur was unab uh, unable to remember where exactly they had buried Janet, and so he couldn't lead the police to recover her body. Two months later, Perry is convicted of all of the murder and conspiracy charges, and it's interesting because there has still been no physical evidence that he ever killed her. Wow. And they, have they found the body ever? Or I guess... No. Oh my Never God. have. So... This was 10 years and two days after prosecutors had alleged that Perry murdered Janet. So it was a pretty protracted investigation and trial process. Mm -hmm. Perry received 56 years in prison. His father received a five-year prison sentence and died um, shortly after entering prison. Perry, of course, filed a million different appeals, but the court ruled against him in every single one. Mm -hmm. And Perry will not be eligible for parole until 2038, at which point he will be 77 years old. Wow. So there are a couple of good things that I will end with, which is the Levines, kind of as a, re I mean, obviously as a result of this, they drafted changes to law in Tennessee to expand grandparents' visitation rights and to provide judges with the ability to terminate parental custody if parents are found criminally or civilly liable for the death of the other parent, which one of the lawsuits kind of like back and forth was they they filed a civil suit of wrongful death against Perry and Perry just never showed up. And so they won and they were awarded like $113 million, but Perry later have that, had that overturned on appeal. Wow. Okay. Um, the Levines did get those laws passed and so, and they were passed unanimously and also, because Janet was kind of a, a well-known, respected artist, there was an art gallery at the Godon, G-O-D-O-N, I'm not sure, mm. Jewish Community Center in Nashville that was named after Janet as a memorial for her. Mm. And that is the story of the disappearance of Janet March. Wow. Gr great job. Thanks. And <laughs> I guess there was no physical evidence, I guess, but there was so much other... Yeah, there's so there, much I mean, circumstantial there was recording. evidence. And... Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. Totally. Recordings of him, all of that, blah, blah, blah. Um, This story ended up being turned into like a few different books and movies, by the way. So uh, if you want to look those up, they are on the internet. Okay, great. Well, that's all I got. How did you how did you come to find this case? I <laughs> I think I just like Google searched the exact description of the Law and Order episode. Like I just took that like one sentence summary mm-hmm. from IMDb of the Law and Order episode and pasted it into Google to see what cases would come up. And this was one of like the first four that I found. Nice. Wow. Yeah. So not exactly the same as the Law and Order episode, but kind of a similar story. Yeah, I could see the similarities. Yeah. So how would you rate the Law & Order episode? Um, I would give it like a B, actually. I don't think it was um, horrendous. It wasn't bad, yeah. yeah. I do want to say one thing, which is you didn't mention a scene where they like bust in on somebody that they're about to arrest, and the person immediately pulls a Teresa Judice and flips the table at oh, them. Oh, I forgot about that guy. <laughs> it's a guy, right? Yeah, I think so. That's right. They get to his house, and they're like, we're coming in, we're coming in. And when he's like, I'm getting dressed, and they open the door, and he- And a table is flying at them. That was so outrageous. I totally forgot about that. I was so confused what was happening. I had to rewind, because like literally the door opened, and a table was already flying at yeah. them. Yeah. By the way, speaking of Housewives and True Crime, did you see that they're doing a like an episode of um, a documentary series, and it's going to be focused on Erica and Tom? Oh, I sure do. It's called The Hustler and the Housewife. And it wait. airs, I think, on the 14th. I cannot wait. Yeah, we definitely need to watch that. Big time. Okay, yeah, so I would give it a B. What was your what would you rate it then? I mean, it was so ridiculous and I really enjoyed like the looks and the bad acting. Like I, I enjoyed making fun of it while I was watching it. So I'm gonna I'll I'll also give it a B just for the fact that it kept me entertained with how bad it was. Yeah. Um I mean it's similar in that the plot is of a husband who uh, is having marital trouble with his wife and and kills her. Yeah. Um, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think it's kind of similar in that regard. I don't like. I don't think the episode did really badly dealing with any specific topics. No. Like I didn't find anything offensive or problematic in the episode particularly yeah um i did find it a little annoying that they were so focused on her sex life after the fact yeah like there was a lot of like oh especially when they find out the guy zach they're like another boyfriend yeah but you know it wasn't horrendous it wasn't terrible yeah i would give it a c yeah i would give it like a i'll give it a c plus nice Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the best thing you can do to help us out is rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to our episodes on, because that helps other people find us really easily. Yes, and the best way for other people to find podcasts in general is usually through word of mouth. So tell a friend, post about us on Reddit, or wherever you're on. Go on Quora and post about us. <laughs> and, uh, Zillow. Yeah, Zillow. Get on LinkedIn, and you know, find whatever ways you can to spread the word. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And we do love getting emails from listeners. So if you want to send us an email about anything, please do. Yes, and please let us know if we can read it on the air. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, um, anything upcoming like newsletters, our merch store, our new Patreon, which is now available, check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. Yeah, that's right. I mean, don't forget about Teresa Caputo's valuable, valuable advice. From beyond. From beyond. We also want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon member of the These Are Their Stories tier, Craig. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you. And thanks so much for listening to Rip From The Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.